Welcome to Biblical Higher Ed Talk, where we tap into the wisdom of leaders and practitioners of biblical higher education for the advancement of colleges and universities teaching the way of Christ in the modern world. Each week, we'll tackle topics around leading your organization, expanding your impact in the world, and deepening your faith through Christ-centered conversations. Ready to make a difference in the lives of your faculty, staff, and students? Then let's begin our journey. Today on Biblical Higher Ed Talk, I sit down with Matt Ayers, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, to discuss the current state of seminary education in North America, what's working well, and what opportunities are shaping the future of the seminary. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Philip Dearborn, president of the Association for Biblical Higher Education. And we are honored to have as our guest this week, Matt Ayers. Matt serves as the president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Uh, prior to that, he served as president of Emmaus University in Haiti. And Matt, when we first met each other just over a year ago, we immediately connected. And I couldn't quite figure out why that was. And very quickly in our conversation, realized that we both were raised in the Philadelphia area. So once a Philly guy meets another Philly guy, you automatically know that you're both from Philadelphia. So I'm uh, glad that uh, we share that in common, as well as our like for the or dislike, depending on the season for our Philadelphia sports teams. But I've invited Matt to uh, talk today about the current state of seminary education and to share from his perspective what he sees the, the future of seminary education, where it's headed, perhaps what needs to change in order for seminary education to flourish. So welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So to kick off our conversation, as you reflect back over your ministry experience, both in Haiti as well as here in the U.S., share with us a, a defining moment for you where God used that moment to propel you forward, either in your personal life or, or in your professional life. Yeah, in, in the professional life or life of being kind of in full-time ministry, but in the mode of a scholar and an academic administrator, right? So those sort of things kind of being wrapped up together was when I really, I had so many people tell me as I was heading to the mission field and while on the field, invest in your relationships. And it kind of sounded like this kitschy, very Christian sort of, yeah, of course, relationships are important, but we need to accomplish things. Stuff needs to get done. And I really came to the point, thankfully, by God's grace, not very long into serving in Haiti. I was there for 13 years. So within a couple of years, I realized how true that statement was, even for, not just for the sake of like, building eternal things for the kingdom, but also for the sake of effectiveness in ministry. So it is those relationships that have caused, been the number one contributor, in my opinion, of the success of the ministry in Haiti. And I think that's true here too, having the, you know, the, the metaphor that we all know, having the right people in the right seats on the bus, such a key. And then um, I think what's bound up with that notion is having a healthy cultural institution. You know, really having a healthy, healthy workplace is key. It's almost like, and it's very Patrick Lencioni, right? If you have that, everything else is firing on all cylinders. That is 
by far, in my opinion, the number one thing. So when I realized this and really internalized it, that's when we really started to see a major thrust forward. So that would that would probably be the moment for me is coming upon that realization. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's one of those things that's so hard to uh, get to that point. Right. There's the realization of it. But then getting to that point where you build a team around you that is high on the relationship and they understand each other and they're clicking together as a, as a group. That's a that's a difficult process and a difficult thing to achieve with your leadership team. Yeah. And, and I think that I read a book in seminary. I went to Wesley Biblical where I serve now called Leadership and Self-Deception. And, some, and the subtitle is like getting outside of the box. And that book was really, really helpful for me to really acknowledge the fact that our basic sinful mode is to use people as a means to our own ends of achievement, as opposed to actually valuing the person in the relationship. And that's a much healthier model. And like, again, we, we can't get that in our own flesh. It's got to be a grace thing that enables us to really embody that reality. And so that was a big game changer for me. And also, as a Wesleyan, my theological orientation is Wesleyan Arminian, very conservative, of course, is we are social Trinitarian, meaning that there's different modes of thinking and theologizing about the Trinity, the imminent Trinity, God at intro, and all that stuff. And we really, really emphasize the importance of interpersonal relationship that God, before he was a sovereign, was a father, right? And that what is the, at the heart of his essence and very nature is holy love between the Father, Son, and his glory and the Holy Spirit. And his glory emanates from that holy love. And like, to me, it is personhood. And, and I think theologically at WBS, I was really taught this of how to think theologically about what I was doing leading an organization. Right, right. Putting into practice a theological framework, right? And that's this is too often that's that's disconnected. So we're going to launch into a series of questions here. Before we do that, I do want to say Matt does have a podcast that he hosts, and uh, I believe it's called Seminary Unboxed. Is that is that correct? That's it. Uh huh. Yep. And uh, you can certainly look it up on your favorite uh, podcast platform. And uh, you'll you'll be blessed when you see all that he's done and does a, a fantastic job. He also um, is involved in in radio programming as well. Uh, so this is this is something you're kind of used to, Matt. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And and I, I'll admit, like full transparent, not my favorite. Th- I love Philip. I'll do anything for Philip, right? But like you know, the microphone, the headphones. It's one of those like resist. All right, Lord, if you want me to do this, we'll do this. So. <laughs> We appreciate you uh, humbling yourself to come uh, on our on our podcast. So 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 thank you so much. So uh, we're talking about seminary education. You're a seminary uh, president. Uh, you've you've been in this world now for for quite some time. You're a graduate from uh, a seminary. Um, so obviously, we we both know we're not going to rehearse the history of seminary education. We know that's something that that's that has its roots. Well, way back, right? Even even in in medieval Europe, but uh, kind of today, w- within the context of the United States, the the singular focus for seminary education has been to train church ministry leaders. Is that still the focus of seminaries today? Uh, has has anything shifted off of that focus from your perspective? Yeah, I. I- I would say yes, it's absolutely still the focus. I think if anything shifted, it's been the definition of what is a ministry leader, right? So I think that with the change, the cultural change in America, America becoming more post-Christian, that this notion of lay leadership and lay ministers, I think is becoming, I I don't know, I'm still young, right? And I'm not a historian, but I think here at WBS, we have 
um, quite a number of non-degree seeking students who are at seminary just to go deeper in their theological knowledge and their biblical knowledge. And, uh, and that is, I, I think, something that's changing, that people are, are wanting to go beyond just Sunday school and also not just picking up that theology book and, and reading through it. They're looking for a deeper level of instruction, but not necessarily looking for a degree or for ordination. And so I think the, the, you know, the theology of the priesthood of all believers is really embedded itself in what, we're, in what we're seeing as far as if there is a shift. It's a broader definition of what an ecclesial leader is. Is that from 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 your perspective? Is that is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that a neutral thing? Uh, I have my own thoughts on it, but I'm curious about yours. Yeah, I think it is mostly good. There are some things we have to watch out for with that, you know. And a part of what we have to watch out for is um, <laughs> people maybe reading a book or taking a class and then fancying themselves an expert. You know, and and then maybe you know teaching someone just enough Greek to be dangerous with it. We've we've seen this time and time again, and this has always been a reality, right, through history. It's just the nature of the human condition. But I think that's one of the downsides. We I don't find much of that though at Wesley Biblical. We've got all I, I teach a class right now on the Psalms, and I've got you know forty auditors in the class and a handful of people taking it for credit. And most of those auditors are people who are just lay people who want to go deeper, and they're so humble. I mean, there's no one there thinking that they're going to go and impress their friends at the dinner table. They just want to know the word of God and go deeper. So, so overall, my experience has been it's a really good thing. And the testimonies that we get from those folks in our non-degree seeking programs, I mean, our growth has been exponential in these programs. So they're telling their friends, their friends are signing up. So I think overall, it's a really good thing. It's another way into making disciples of all nations is rather than going and doing the small group at the house, hey, come and take this course at seminary and learn about why... Uh, the Old Testament is different than the rest of the ancient Near Eastern myths, you know, specifically Genesis 1 to 11. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is sponsored by ABHE, the Association for Biblical Higher Education. At ABHE, bringing the love and light of Christ to the world is reflected in our drive to see our member institutions flourish, leading them to a time of success for their institution and giving them the tools and insights they need to look toward the future. Interested in learning more about membership with ABHE? Visit us at abhe.org or send us an email to membership at abhe.org. ABHE is your partner committed to advancing biblical higher education for kingdom impact. Now back to the show. Going back, what what I see within uh, biblical higher education was that connection of occupation and ministry. So therefore, if you were in full-time ministry, then therefore you are fulfilling God's call for your life. If you're in anything other than that, then, um, you know, you're not in ministry. And I think that broadening to understand that, look, you know, when you look at the the, the great commission of of go and make disciples, it's not contextualized to your occupation of I'm in full-time Christian ministry, right? It's it's broader than that. But there's some danger that comes with that broadening too, where you perhaps water down or you minimize people who are called right or or are called to full-time ministry within the context of the church. Yeah, interesting. I agree a hundred percent. And I tell people all the time seminary is not just for full-time clergy. 
It's not for just ordained people or people seeking ordination. We're all, we've all been ordained, right? And we all trust that it's by the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that we're out there exercising our gifts for the advancement of the kingdom. I believe the Holy Spirit is always taking us deeper in our knowledge of God, our knowledge of our sin, and he does that through a deepening of our knowledge of Scripture, of course, but also of doctrine that he was a part of shaping and inspiring, especially in the early church period, first seven ecumenical councils of the church and all those wonderful things. Interestingly, but we have to stay humble. And that's something that we, you know, I don't mean to launch off into like a theological diatribe, but we do theology as an act of worship at Wesley Biblical. We are not just an academy. We are a church. We are an abbey. We are an apostolate. We send, we worship, we study. When we study, we're worshiping with our minds. We're loving the Lord with all of our minds. And so that posture with which we come to doing theology and studying theology and seeking to understand God, and this is this way of thinking of the theology of theological education has been around forever. It's been around forever. So, you know, the early church father said, Gregory Nazianza said, it's by his light that we see light. And C.S. Lewis, I don't believe in God because the same way I believe in the sun, it rises because I see it rise, but by it, I see all things. And so we come to worship him and he reveals himself in that context. And so when we don't approach our, our theological education, whether you're a lay person or clergy that way, there's a risk that we run of getting it wrong, of minimizing being overly reductionistic or reducing the value of what a full-time clergy member is in terms of really understanding some of the technical nuance of what it means to administer sacraments and these sorts of things. I, I sense a new book for you, The Theology of Theological Education. That, would be, a, that would be a fascinating framework to, to write about. Yeah. And, you know, it's been written about tons, but primarily church historians and historical theologians, because it's been talked about. But in our contemporary age, with the secularization of culture, we have the separation of the academy and the ecclesia, right? And so we're always reminding our students we're a church, we're here to worship. That's what we're doing here. You know, we don't uh, make uh, our understanding of scripture bow to the bar of human reason. We're willing to hit that sacred mystery button, you know, because, and there's so much more. Yeah, I love it. You're you're li- you're living in the tension of that. That's fantastic. So yeah, we are we are. Um, so so when you look at and pulling back, not necessarily where you are, but when you when you evaluate the broader context of seminary education, what would you say are the top two or three challenges that seminaries face today? Well, number one, in my opinion, and I hold this opinion pretty strongly. I'm happy to be wrong or challenged. Is holding to orthodoxy. We are so influenced by what we think academies are and should be and informed by the cultural movement of the enlightenment, right? That I think we really have to get back to the dark ages and before of understanding that what we are doing is an act of worship. Um, Just some of the things I just talked about, but holding to orthodoxy, I very much believe, and again, I can receive criticism for this and I don't mind that. I'd rather speak plainly about the matter. I believe that we're becoming and have become in much of our nation a post-Christian nation, I think we can lay the fault at the feet of our seminaries because people, they feel called to ministry. They sense that call. They go to seminary and there their faith dies and, and they come out totally shipwrecked and dead. And, and I think that's an absolute tragedy. So I think holding to orthodoxy and remembering it, uh, what it is that we're doing, being confessional scholars, uh, continuing to can hold the convictions of, of classical Christianity, what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. And we can, <laughs> yeah, there's more I could say. So I think that's number one, is holding to orthodoxy. Number two, 
I think is finances. Um, this is just going to be a struggle as we're becoming more and more post-Christian. I mean, just look to the Europe. Like the, the the challenges is that the seminaries are facing in Europe are the challenges that we're going to face here in the next two decades or so. And and you know you got to raise money for this. We're nonprofits. We live off of the donations of our benefactors. We need to diversify our revenue streams. It can't just be tuition. It can't be just annual fund gifts. We and but like. Uh, ha- having a right theology of even an endowment, you know, I, I understand endowments. We have a small one here. We're trying to grow it, but there's something about endowments. I'm not too enthusiastic about, you know, I always tell the joke of when Jesus comes back, he's going to look around and say to the church, what am I supposed to do with all this endowment money? You know? So that, that said, I think that finances is going to be a big, big challenge. It's a big challenge now. In addition to that, I say the third challenge. So number one, holding to orthodoxy. Number two is finances. Number three is meeting the students where they are. Um, so so often when the student arrives in the classroom, the the expert, the professor who's been reading these books, they're living in their own headspace, and the students are going, "I don't understand the conversation you're having," and we have to bring them into the conversation, and we have to orient them to the conversation. That's as harder to do than you would think, especially for a brainiac professor. Yeah, and uh, that's where I was just going to go with that. You know, you you look at I think culturally the generations that we're educating are are open to the dialogue. They're hungry for that oh, dialogue. Yeah, hundred percent. The flip side of it is our our professors as the academy prepared to engage that conversation because a, a lot of it comes across as a challenge to faith or a challenge to orthodoxy or a challenge, but they're simply reflecting their lived experience and trying to weigh that and and holding it in conflict with what they see in scripture and they need the opportunity for dialogue. Yeah, right. And and yeah, and I I think that every graduate of a seminary should go out understanding the history of how we arri- have arrived at this place in our culture today and and a great example of this is like Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self where he says in the introduction, I recommend it to all listeners, great book or a strange new world is a shorter version of that book. He says, how did we go that 50 years ago, if you went to a medical doctor and said, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, that he would probably diagnose you with some kind of psychosis. And today we go, that's wonderful. Let's celebrate that. And how did we make such a big shift in such a short period of time? Well, there is a historical answer to that, that we can look to. Uh, Charles Taylor's The Secular Age, you know, and our, our seminary students should know because there are answers to these questions. We don't just have to throw our hands up and go, I don't know. And so um, bringing these students into the conversation, orienting, I mean, that's our job. That's what education is. But we have to meet them where they are. We have to meet them where they are, both in their in their in their minds, their lived experiences, and of course in the worship experience in terms of their theological orientations and all those with their traditions. And so yeah, I think that's a big challenge that we really have to so good. We talked about challenges, which tends to be on the, the the more negative side of things. So let's let's flip that coin and say, okay, yes, there are significant challenges, but what are the opportunities in, in seminary education? Yeah, I think number one is uh, is connected is is reviving classical Christianity, because I believe that a lot of our seminaries are spiritually just dead. And I think that is an opportunity for seminaries like where I'm serving here at Wesley Biblical to go, no, classical Christianity is the only option for thinking people, for, rash, for, for 
Yeah. And so I think reviving classical Christianity is one of the, the biggest opportunities that we have. Number two, I think technology is a huge, huge opportunity. And this is true across the board for education, I think. Here at WBS, we are a, a polysynchronous model, meaning we do everything through Zoom, but students can also come to the classroom. They have, there's an in-class option, which very few students take advantage of. So we have a hand, handful of students here in the Jackson metro area that are within miles from our, our building. And uh, we don't see them until graduation day. Like they, they could drive five minutes and be here and sit in class, but they're taking it from a coffee shop, from their living room, so on and so forth. Now, there's a whole, and I wrote a piece on this for Christianity Today back in October last year about rebutting some of the concerns of online seminary. And I, I agree, the number one best option is in-person learning. Um, we're incarnational in our theology. There's something to be said about being in a room together, the physical proximity. There's something that happens there. The Eucharist, right? God in real time and space and all those sorts of things. And and we don't deny those things. And we, we really try not to undervalue those things or empty those things of their power. But we can reach so much further with so much less money spent because of the technology as it's come to us today. I mean, we're able to charge so much less money because we don't have a huge campus with 15 buildings and a fizz plant and housing. And, and students don't have to upend their lives move their families to seminary, maybe have a part-time job. You know, this modality allows for them to be in work, not to have to stop their careers to go to seminary. Now, I get there's another side to that coin. There's a benefit to like putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. And, and, but I think that there are models which allow for both. And I think that that's a, technology is a wonderful opportunity for us. And especially to train the majority world. I mean, we're training dozens of pastors right now in Africa. And in Haiti and in Mexico and in oh, we're looking at a Bolivia program. And so and we're in Japan, we're doing it through Zoom, you know, so technology. So reviving classical Christianity, technology. I think the third opportunity, if I would list three, would be partnerships. I think we're living in a more ecumenical era era than we have been in the past hundred years or so, where institutions are willing to partner across different theological sex divides sort of thing. And so I think that's a, a big opportunity for us is partnership. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. And, and the academy traditionally has, has resisted partnership for a multitude of, of reasons. Um, in, integrity of, of their theological stand being, being one of those. But honestly, I, I think a lot of it too has just to do with survival, right? And, and just, just wanting to maintain, they, they think they're the best at what they do and they, they want to survive and, and carry that forward. But I think gone are those days. We, we need to be thinking in terms of partnership, deep partnerships, right? That, that crosses space, like physical space, but also shared services, backend services. I think there's, there's all kinds of opportunity there. So that's, that's a great summary. So uh, when, when you think about the future, if you were to, somebody unearths this podcast 20 years from now, they're either going to prove you're right or wrong in the, in the answer to this. But what does the seminary look like 20 years from now when, when both you and I are, are in the, the, the retirement community or the nursing home? Yeah, I think the big one is 20 years from now, the seminary landscape, there's about 275, I think, Association of Theological Schools accredited seminaries in North America, so Canada included. There will be less. That number is absolutely going to go down. It's not going to go up. It's gone up for a while, but it's going to go down. And I think that some of that is just becoming a post-Christian nation. 
right? And so the interesting thing is that the seminaries are the cause of their own deaths. <laughs> That's the kind of irony of it. In my opinion, could be wrong about that. Again, not a historian, but what I'm seeing and the trends that we're seeing, and in fact, I'll disclose, I, I sent all of uh, these questions to members of my cabinet to get their input. And every one of them said, there will be less seminaries in the next 20 years. Yeah, especially especially the theologically liberal ones will die um, because it's neutered. Theological liberalism, Roger Olson argues in his book against liberal Christianity, um, it ultimately will turn into uh, universal Unitarianism, which is a neutered church. It's not the real church, and there's no reason for existence at that point. And so there will be less. There will be less seminaries, number one. Number two, I think more will be online and less will be in person and on campus for better or for worse, you know, and again, I'm happy to, to argue or to be proven wrong about this online thing, but I think it's here to stay. I think it's going to improve and get better. And by the way, some of our faculty here, they like online better because they can look into the face of every student in the classroom, right? So uh, there are some benefits beyond just economics to having the online dynamic. So there'll be less seminaries, more will be online than they've ha- they have been in the past. And that has to do with the financial piece too. Like it can't keep going at this rate of expense. And one of the ways to reduce expenses, I mean, the average seminary in the United States spends $40,000 a year per student. Wow. And at WBS, we spend less than half that per student wow. because wow. of our online modality. Even, uh, even to have the metrics like that, I think is a great leadership lesson to know what what is what is your true cost as an organization, as an institution to educate a student. So that's Sorry, it. That was a little, little no, bit of a tangent, but no, it's great. So there will be less seminaries. I think more will be online. I would predict too that the Master of Divinity program is going to diminish. It, I think that it's going to be less and less popular, again, for better or for worse. Obviously, I love higher theological education. I would love to see every ordained pastor in America to have a PhD. That used to be the model, you know, the pastor theologian who's an expert in theology and the scriptures. But the realities of what our economic lives demand, you know, we're not living in small medieval villages anymore. And so is that just, is that feasible? I I wish, I wish it was, but in the master's divinity for the listeners who may not know, it's a heavy degree. I mean, it's the minimum 76 credit hours. It used to be over a hundred. They cut it down to 92 and then the, the minimum requirements, right? ATS cut it down and then it down to 76. Most of our students here are not taking MDivs and denominations, denominations set the requirement for ordination. And most of the time they say, you got to have an MDiv, right? Um, But that's shifting. The Global Methodist Church is going to be the second largest Methodist, let's say, group movement probably in the world here before long. And when I say Methodist, I mean pan-Wesleyan world. We're projecting right now it'll have about 6,000 churches or so in the next couple of years. United Methodism has about 33,000 churches in North America. and and the Global Methodist Church, as of today, is not requiring an MDiv. The require, yeah, sixty credit hours for a for an eldership and thirty for a, a deacon to be a deacon or eligible for deacon. And so, I think there'll be less MDivs again for better or for worse. So, I think that I also think that lastly, because of AI and technology, which is one of the great opportunities for us, I think, and this is the opinion I hold the the, the the loosest in terms of a prediction, seminaries are going to have to shift, I think, to really making sure that they're focused on teaching their students to think theologically in a time in which we're going to have machines thinking for us. 
right? So I think there's going to be a shift in how we deliver the education. Maybe that means moving into more of a Socratic method of teaching, more of a mentorship model. But like between search engines, chat GPT, and the development of AI, AIs, they can't think. They have data, but they can't think critically. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's changing. But I think we need theologians and pastors who can think critically. I also think, and it's wrapped up with this one, that there's going to be a shift towards further, usually in theological studies, our focus is on theology, right? This understanding of God, Christology, soteriology, ecclesiology, eschatology, homardiology. I think anthropology is going to come more into focus and be less of a background topic, the study of what it means to be human. I think that that's going to receive more attention in the next 20 years because of the advancement of artificial intelligence. Fascinating. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you didn't answer the question that the seminary uh, will be no more 20 years from now. And I think, you know, and I think that's got some great grounding in the New Testament and the church and the future, the, the fact that the gospel message is maintained through in its integrity through the function of the church. And that's going to be critical. It's God's plan A for this age, right, is through the church. And the church will and the church will forever need leaders, and those leaders will need to be changed or, or trained. What doesn't, what can change or what should change is how we do that. And I think you're doing a, a fantastic job with that. So with that, we'll, we'll end our conversation. And I just want to uh, say thank you to you, Matt, for uh, joining us as a, as a fellow Philly guy. Go Birds. Exactly right. We'll see how the season goes. But really appreciate um, you and the leadership, uh, your leadership team, all of the things that you all are doing at Wesley. Uh, we really appreciate uh, the partnership with ABHE. So until next time, stay kingdom focused. Thanks for listening to Biblical Higher Ed Talk. For more, follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're delighted that you chose to spend a part of your day with us and encourage you to reach out to us with feedback, topics, or guests for the show. You can get in touch with Philip, your host, via LinkedIn or at biblicalhigheredtalk at abhe.org. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is a production of the Association for Biblical Higher Education in association with Westport Studios. Views expressed on this show are those of the participants and may not reflect the views of ABHE or Westport Studios. Bring light and life to your biblical higher educational organization by inquiring about membership with ABHE at abhe.org. We'll catch you next time.